From New York, this is Democracy Now! My message to the Taliban is to reopen schools for girls as soon as possible. I urge them to keep their word, and I request the international community to pressure the Taliban to reopen our schools. We want to study. As the Taliban cracks down on women's rights and millions of Afghans go hungry, we'll look at life in Afghanistan a year after the Taliban regained power. We'll speak to Matthew Akins of The New York Times about the Taliban's dangerous collision course with the West. Then, a jury in California has convicted a former worker at Twitter of spying for Saudi Arabia by providing the kingdom private information about Saudi dissidents. We'll speak to the sister of an imprisoned Saudi man who was tortured and jailed for running a satirical Twitter account. My brother is a humanitarian aid worker who got kidnapped from his office more than four years ago and was placed under enforced disappearance, uh, brutally tortured and sentenced to 20 years of imprisonment for tweeting. Plus, we speak to Walden Bello, the longtime Filipino activist and former vice presidential candidate. He was arrested Monday on cyber libel charges just weeks after the inauguration of the Philippines' new president, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., son of the former U.S.-backed dictator. Bello says his arrest was masterminded by the Philippines' new vice president, Sara Duterte, the daughter of the former president, Rodrigo Duterte. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Attorney General Merrick Arlins asked a federal judge to unseal the warrant the FBI used in its August 8th search of former President Donald Trump's estate in Florida. Garland announced the request Thursday, as he delivered his first public comment since Trump said the FBI had searched his Mar-a-Lago residence Monday. The department filed the motion to make public the warrant and receipt in light of the former president's public confirmation of the search, the surrounding circumstances, and the substantial public interest in this matter. Attorney General Garland said he personally approved the warrant and condemned verbal attacks on the FBI and Justice Department by Trump and his allies. The Washington Post reports the FBI is seeking, among other things, highly classified documents about U.S. nuclear weapons. Hours after Garland's remarks, Donald Trump said in a statement he encouraged the immediate unsealing of the warrant. If Trump is proven to have mishandled classified documents, he could be guilty of a felony. In 2018, then-President Trump signed a bill upgrading the crime from a misdemeanor to a felony, while increasing punishments for those who mishandle classified information. In Ohio, a man wearing body armor and armed with an AR-15-style assault rifle fired a nail gun into an FBI field office in Cincinnati Thursday, prompting a gun battle chase and armed standoff that ended hours later when the gunman was shot dead by police in a cornfield. Officials identified the man as 42-year-old Ricky Schiffer, a supporter of Donald Trump and the far-right Proud Boys. Two days before Thursday's attack on the FBI, Schiffer posted on Trump's Truth Social online forum calling on allies to, quote, kill the FBI on sight, unquote. Schiffer also appears in a video posted to Facebook on January 5, 2021, showing him at a pro-Trump rally in Washington, D.C., the night before the assault on the Capitol. And he boasted online he was at the insurrection. 
The FBI's execution of a search warrant on Mar-a-Lago last week has spawned extremely violent rhetoric among Trump supporters. The pro-Trump Gateway Pundit website declared, this means war, a message echoed by Trump's former top political adviser, Steve Bannon, who declared, the FBI is the Gestapo, unquote. Today is the fifth anniversary of the deadly 2017 Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, where a self-described neo-Nazi he slammed his car into a crowd of anti-racist counter-protesters, killing Heather Heyer and injuring dozens of others. A federal court in Washington, D.C., has sentenced a former police officer, Thomas Robertson, to more than seven years in prison over his role in the January 6th assault on the U.S. Capitol. Robertson had served as a police officer in Rocky Mount, Virginia. A month prior to the insurrection, Robertson called for an open-armed rebellion. Another former Rocky Mountain police officer, Jacob Fracker, is being sentenced today. Meanwhile, newly revealed documents show officials at the Department of Homeland Security tried to warn Congress last April that text messages sent by Secret Service agents around the time of the January 6th insurrection were missing. But their attempts were thwarted by the DHS Inspector General Joseph Kafari, a Donald Trump appointee. The revelation prompted renewed calls for Kafari to resign. President Biden has not ruled out firing him. The Centers for Disease Control has further relaxed its guidelines on COVID-19. The CDC's new recommendations further shift the onus to individuals rather than public health measures to reduce the risks of catching the disease. The CDC no longer recommends people remain at least six feet apart, no longer recommends quarantine for people who've been exposed to an infected person. On Thursday, a CDC epidemiologist told reporters, quote, we know that COVID-19 is here to stay, unquote. More than 40,000 people are currently hospitalized with COVID-19 across the United States, where the disease continues to kill more than 3,300 people each week. The International Atomic Energy Agency is calling on Russia and Ukraine to immediately halt fighting around Europe's largest nuclear power plant. On Thursday, Ukraine reported at least 10 Russian shells exploded near the sprawling Zaporizhia nuclear complex, the latest in a series of attacks that have threatened to trigger a nuclear catastrophe. In Kyiv, the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, said Thursday Russia had taken the whole world hostage. Russia has again hit the bottom in the world history of terrorism. No one else has used a nuclear power plant so obviously to threaten the whole world and to put forward some conditions. Earlier today, Russia's ambassador to the United Nations said he does not support international calls for a demilitarized zone around the Zaporizhia nuclear plant. Elsewhere in Ukraine, residents of Kharkiv continue to come under heavy shelling, with people reporting missiles striking a crowded neighborhood Thursday. There are no military vehicles here. It's the center of Kharkiv. People live here. It's usually very quiet, with no military objects nearby. I have no idea why our yard was shelled. Meanwhile, Russia's foreign ministry has acknowledged for the first time it's negotiating with the Biden administration for a prisoner swap that could see jailed U.S. citizens Brittany Griner and Paul Whelan freed from Russian penal colonies. President Biden said the news left him hopeful a prisoner swap could soon be completed. 
The Pentagon says it carried out three airstrikes in Somalia Tuesday that killed four al-Shabaab fighters. It was the second time in recent weeks that U.S. Central Command announced airstrikes in Somalia. Elsewhere, five people were killed and a hundred others injured Thursday as Somali government forces clashed with demonstrators in towns across the breakaway region of Somaliland. Witnesses said security forces used clubs and live fire to attack protesters who were calling on the Somali leader, Musbihi Abdi, not to delay presidential elections in November. This comes as the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees said it recently registered the one millionth person displaced by Somalia's devastating drought, which has led to widespread crop failure and the death of livestock since January 2021. The U.N. says the number of Somalis facing hunger is expected to rise to more than 7 million in the coming months due to the effects of the climate crisis and rising food prices caused by the Russian war on Ukraine. In southwestern France, more than 10,000 people have been forced to evacuate a massive wildfire that continues to burn out of control near the city of Bordeaux. Firefighters from Austria, Greece, Germany, Poland and Romania have joined some 10,000 French firefighters battling the blaze. This comes as much of Europe continues to bake in an unprecedented heat wave. Meanwhile, wildfires are raging in central Portugal and parts of the United Kingdom are again under an extreme heat warning. In Brazil. Thousands of people took to the streets of cities across the country Thursday in defense of democracy after far-right President Jair Bolsonaro threatened to reject the results of October's first-round presidential election if he loses. Former leftist Brazilian President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, who is running again, currently leads in the polls. Bolsonaro has been claiming without evidence Brazil's electronic voting system is vulnerable. This is a protester in Rio de Janeiro. We are here to ask for free elections, free education, and improvements for our people, because our people cannot be dying of hunger. In more news from Brazil, police have arrested another five people linked to the June murders of British journalist Dom Phillips and Brazilian indigenous rights advocate Bruno Pereira. Authorities also identified one of the suspects in the murder as the leader of an illegal fishing organized crime group in the Amazon region. Phillips and Pereira went missing in Brazil's Javari Valley in June. Their remains were found dismembered about two weeks later. You can go to democracynow.org to see our interview with indigenous lawyer Eliasio Maruba in Brasilia about calls to independently investigate their murders. And the San Francisco Chronicle reports at least seven employees with the San Francisco District Attorney's Office have resigned since Brooke Jenkins was appointed DA in July. She replaced former progressive DA Chesa Boudin, who was ousted by voters in June in a multimillion-dollar-funded special recall election led by the real estate industry. Fifteen other staff members were fired following the recall election. Jenkins said she volunteered in Boudin's recall efforts. But it has now been revealed that she received over $100,000 as a consultant for a nonprofit called Neighbors for a Better San Francisco, linked to efforts targeting Boudin, who aimed to reform the criminal justice system but face mounting attacks by the real estate industry. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. 
Monday will mark one year since the Taliban regained control of Afghanistan as the U.S. withdrew troops nearly two decades after the 2001 U.S. invasion. Afghanistan today is facing what the United Nations says is the world's largest humanitarian disaster, with more than half the country's residents facing starvation. Meanwhile, the Taliban continues to crack down on human rights and has barred girls from attending high school for the past year. The Taliban is also facing accusations of harboring leaders of al-Qaeda. Last week, the United States announced it had killed al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawahiri in a drone strike in downtown Kabul. This all comes as Afghanistan is facing a dire economic crisis, in part because the Biden administration sees $7 billion of Afghanistan foreign reserves held in U.S. banks. We're joined now by the award-winning reporter Matthew Akins, who's reported on Afghanistan since 2008. He was in Kabul last year when the city fell to the Taliban, and he returned to Afghanistan in May to report on current conditions. He's just written a piece for The New York Times magazine titled, The Taliban's Dangerous Collision Course with the West. Earlier this year, Matt Akins published his first book, The Naked Don't Fear the Water, An Underground Journey with Afghan Refugees. Matt Akins, welcome back to Democracy Now! Why don't you lay out your findings as we mark this first year of Afghanistan's fall to the Taliban? Well, hi, Amy. Thanks for having me, as always. I went back in order to understand what had happened during the Taliban's first year in power. And as you recall, the girls' school issue was really a litmus test for whether they had changed, whether they would govern differently this time than they did during their first government in the 90s, where they didn't allow women to be educated. And they did allow girls to go back to elementary schools, to universities, but they hadn't opened the girls' public high schools yet. They had promised to do so. Um, they said it was just temporary. and. This is going to happen on March 23rd, which is the first day of class for Afghan schools. And the girls went to school. They were filmed going to class because it was supposed to be a hopeful day. And then word came out that day that, no, the schools wouldn't open. The girls were sent home crying. It was uh, an embarrassing debacle for the government. And I remember at the time not just being—not only being very disappointed and heartbroken, but, but baffled. Why would the Taliban— change their mind at the last minute like this. So that's what I went back to find out. And in my interviews and meetings with Taliban officials in Kabul, including at the education ministry, what I actually discovered was that many of them had been in favor of reopening the girls' schools. They saw it you know, as something that was very much in their interest, um, not, not least because the international community was you know, spending billions of dollars to avert humanitarian disaster in Afghanistan. So they had prepared a plan to reopen the schools, but at the last minute, word came from Kandahar uh, that the schools would not reopen because it turned out that it wasn't really up to the officials in Kabul. The true power in the movement lies in Kandahar with the Supreme Leader and the Leadership Council. So who really controls um, what's happening in Afghanistan within the Taliban? Well, you know, it's really interesting how mysterious and opaque some of this decision-making is. Even some of the senior Taliban officials that I spoke to, you know, admitted to me in private that they weren't fully sure how these decisions were being made or what exactly the role of the supreme leader, Sheikh Haibatullah, was. 
But in essence, the, to understand how power works in the Taliban, you have to look back at the first government in the 90s when you had sort of two governments. You had the formal cabinet in Kabul, and then you had another government led by the, then the Supreme Leader, Mullah Omar, who never left Kandahar, who stayed in Kandahar and governed with a close council or shura of other senior Taliban leaders, a kind of shadow government. Now that became the leadership of the insurgency for the last 20 years when they went underground in Pakistan, became known as the Quetta Shura. And then after the Taliban suddenly seized power last summer, which is something that surprised even them, um, that government became grafted onto the current Kabul administration. So you have the supreme leader in Kandahar, you have a small group around him that operates based on consensus, and some of the hardliners in that group who were opposed to reopening girls' schools essentially were able to block what much of the officials in, in Kabul, uh, including some of the deputies like Siraj Haqqani, uh, Mullah Yaqub, the defense minister, they were in favor of reopening girls' schools, but the hardliners, in essence, blocked it. Talk about Afghanistan overall, Kabul and the more rural areas, and what this divide looks like, how it's playing out. And then we'll get into this humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan, uh, perhaps the worst in the world, as so much of the country faces hunger. So the Taliban, again, in their first government in the 90s, they were really trying to bring back this idea of the virtuous village lifestyle. This is a time of chaos and corruption in the Civil War. And in these rural villages, which are very conservative, particularly in the south, in Pashtun areas, women don't really leave the house. It's a very strictly gender-segregated society. And this is the model that they tried to impose across Afghan society as a whole in the 90s with a lot of repression and brutality. And today, there's a battle playing out within the movement over whether that vision still holds. And the fact of the matter is that even if the Taliban haven't changed, Afghan society has changed dramatically in the last 20 years. You know, millions of girls have gone to school and been educated. Their families have seen the benefits of that education. And some of the more pragmatic Taliban that I spoke to in Kabul, they really understand that that reality has changed and they are trying to adapt as well. They have their own strict Islamist vision, but they see that girls can go to school, they can go to the office, as long as they're veiled, as long as they're separated from men. So that is essentially the tension between, you could say, the city and the countryside that's playing out within the Taliban movement itself. And unfortunately for now, we see the hardliners have won. But it is important to remember that there's, there is, uh, you know, these internal dynamics within the movement that hopefully could lead to more reform in the future. According to the United Nations, nearly 1.1 million Afghan children under the age of five are expected to experience severe malnutrition this year. This is Melanie Galvin, the chief of nutrition at UNICEF, speaking in Kabul. I think we need, in the longer term, we're still going to need a great deal of funding to just treat these children. In 2023, I will have a problem, I will have a gap in, in supply, for example, if there isn't um, additional resources that come into the country. So we've done everything we can with the donations we've had, and we're so grateful for them. Um, but this need will continue. It's not going to stop. So according to the UN, half the population faces hunger. 
Talk about the resources the Taliban have access to. Uh, for example, the U.S. freezing billions of dollars of Afghan money and what that means, how that plays out in Afghanistan. Sure. Well, I think it's important to understand that even though the U.S. and its allies spent more than $100 billion on development aid in Afghanistan over the last 20 years, it remained one of the poorest and most aid-dependent countries in the world. And that was in part due to all the corruption that flourished with this uncontrolled spending, much of it by contractors. And so when that aid was suddenly cut off after the Taliban seized power last August, it had the predictable consequence of causing an economic collapse, government salaries are going unpaid, teachers, medical workers. So the country is now facing a dire economic crisis. Um, it's being kept on humanitarian life support by a massive humanitarian surge. There's now more aid workers working for these agencies in Afghanistan today than there was before uh, the collapse of the government last August, the withdrawal of U.S. forces. And that means that the U.S. and its allies are actually funding and, and, and these humanitarian efforts are cooperating with the Taliban. But of course, the U.S. did also seize the Afghan bank assets that were held uh, in the U.S., $7 billion, and they've earmarked half of that for victims of 9-11 and their families. Now, that puts the U.S. in a funny position because it, it is at once both uh, the largest funder of humanitarian efforts in Afghanistan and one of the main causes of the humanitarian crisis with these sanctions. So what is the U.S. doing with that money? Right now, it's on ice, and there's talk about um, returning the other three and a half billion dollars to the Afghan, you know, to Afghans. Now, they haven't, they're not going to give it to the Taliban, but they're in negotiations right now to set up maybe some sort of trust fund or something like that that could be used to recapitalize the financial sector. But one of the big problems facing Afghanistan today is that its economy is paralyzed by these sanctions um, and a lot of other knock-on effects. You know, other banks don't want to do business with Afghan banks because of some very genuine concerns, for example, over terrorism and money laundering. But what that means, in essence, is that the Afghan economy isn't able to stand on its own feet. Uh, it's dependent right now on external aid. The UN is actually flying in pallets of $100 bills, more than a billion dollars to date, that they're flying into Kabul. And that's essentially keeping the economy on life support. But you know, one of the interesting things that I realized after this last year since the collapse of the republic is that, in a sense, for the U.S. and its allies, the crisis in Afghanistan has been contained somewhat. You know, it's been contained through this massive humanitarian surge through these agencies that are cleaning up after political messes, not just in Afghanistan, but in places like Somalia uh, or Yemen. It's, it's feeding Afghans hand to mouth. The migration flows of you know, refugees to Europe have been contained by all the border walls that have helped cage Afghans inside this, their country. So even despite the massive suffering in Afghanistan, I think that there's a sense it's been contained. And in a, in a, in a strange way, the Taliban have played a stabilizing role in that. And I think there's been an actual a normalization of the relationships with a lot of countries in the region who see the Taliban as possibly just keeping a lid on things in Afghanistan. Talk about the U.S. drone killing of Zohari. Were you surprised by this, the uh, killing of the al-Qaeda leader, um, and the uh, fact that he was in a house owned by Khatani and what that means? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I used to go jogging basically right by that street when I, every morning when I was in Kabul. The mornings I got up early enough, anyways. And it's, so it's right in the middle of the city, and it was surprising to see the drone strike there in the house that used to be rented by um, U.S. aid contractors, actually, and in an area that was occupied by warlords after 2001. But this really does show the limits of that, that, that containment strategy that I just spoke about. And the fact of the matter is that if, the, if Afghanistan again becomes a threat to its neighbors, as it did in the 90s because of groups like al-Qaeda, then you could see a, you know, intervention uh, on the side of the armed resistance to the Taliban that could spark a new cycle of the civil war. Um, but at the same time, I do think that it's important to remember that these groups have a long-standing relation with the Taliban. Uh, they got closer, actually, when they jointly resisted the U.S. occupation of the last 20 years. And so the Taliban kind of are in kind of a tricky place where they, they can't reject these groups, um, but they, they can't send them elsewhere, obviously. So it's possible that by keeping al-Zawahri in Kabul, it was a way of keeping him um, under supervision, but we really don't know the details. I was told by a senior U.S. official that according to their information, much of the Taliban leadership was actually unaware that al-Zawahri was in Kabul and that it was the work of a faction connected to Haqqani, the interior ministry, um, in sheltering him. Again, um, uh, Haqqani is the, is the interior minister. That's right, yeah. Sirajuddin Haqqani, who is, you know, long been held to be uh, one of the fiercest opponents of the U.S., was responsible for many attacks, is designated as a, as a terrorist by the FBI, has a bounty on his head, and also happens to be one of the most socially, quote-unquote, progressive of the Taliban. Uh, he and the group around him, who, who occupy many ministries in Kabul, uh, have been some of the most vocal proponents of letting the girls go back to school, have helped out a lot of aid agencies and they've had trouble with other elements of the Taliban over their female workers. So it just shows the, the very difficult contradictions at play in the country and I think the need for understanding better the dynamics there. Um, finally, you spend a good amount of time in your piece uh, highlighting maternal health care. The Taliban has a contradiction because, on the one hand, uh, many in the leadership, a number, don't want girls and women educated, but they only allow women doctors and nurses to deal with women in maternity hospitals. Talk about this. Yeah, so that's the, 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 the irony, in essence, because they only need women to deal with women. Um, they need women doctors, which means you need women teachers. And so there will always be this core of educated Afghan women. Even in the 90s, the Taliban the, you know, allowed doctors, female doctors, to continue working in, in some areas. So today you have women working. You have a lot of women working in Afghanistan. I thought that was important to show. I went to this hospital, which is being supported by the, the Red Cross, the ICRC, and I met these women doctors who are doing you know, heroic, life-saving work. They're, they're helping women who are coming in now from more distant rural areas because there's peace in Afghanistan, at least. There's, there's, there's security on the roads. And so women are coming in in really rough condition from places that, where they would have just died at home. They're saving their lives. These women are working hard. But the fact of the matter is, is if you don't allow girls to go back to high school, then you're not going to have girls in university. You're not going to have girls in medical school. And eventually this pipeline of Afghanistan's nurses and doctors um, women doctors are going is going to run out, and so that's really I think the most compelling reason. It's not for international aid or Western approval that the Taliban should 
allow girls to go back to school. It's for their own country's interest. It's for the sake of their own daughters. And I think that there are some people in the Taliban who understand that. Uh, they've been blocked by the hardliners. But we can, we can only hope that, um, especially with internal pressure from the many Afghans who are, who are speaking up in favor of women's rights, that they will see the light and allow the girls to go back to school. Finally, Matthew Aikens, um 20 years, more than 20 years after the U.S. invaded Afghanistan, they left and left it, would you say, in worse shape than the U.S. when they invaded Afghanistan? And how do Afghans feel about this? Look, I, I think it's unfair to say that it's in worse shape than it was in 2001, when the country was ravaged, destroyed, impoverished. There have been a lot of gains over the last 20 years. Afghans have, you know, rebuilt their country themselves, but it came at such a high price in terms of bloodshed and suffering, the, the damage that the war did to the fabric of society, the, the refugees. So the fact of the matter is that today Afghanistan is again in crisis, but we don't have the same tools to deal with them. We're not occupying anymore militarily. Afghan girls are no longer the poster ch children for our war there. And there's a limit to what we can accomplish, but I don't think that means that our our obligation to the country has disappeared. I think that we still need to keep the spotlight on Afghanistan. We still need to do all that we can to support Afghans outside the country and, and especially inside the country who are uh, still struggling, and, and that includes the girls who, who want to go to high school. And so we absolutely need to, to keep our relationship alive with this country. Matthew Akins, contributing writer for The New York Times Magazine, author of The Naked Don't Fear the Water, An Underground Journey with Afghan Refugees. We'll link to your new article, The Taliban's Dangerous Collision Course with the West. Coming up, a jury in California has convicted a former Twitter worker of spying for Saudi Arabia by providing the kingdom private information about Saudi dissidents. We'll speak with the sister of an imprisoned Saudi man who was tortured and jailed for running a satirical Twitter account. It was anonymous. Stay with us. Stand by Ensemble Kabul. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. A jury in California has convicted a former Twitter employee of spying for Saudi Arabia by providing the kingdom private information about Saudi dissidents. Prosecutors accuse the man, Ahmad Abuamo, of taking hundreds of thousands of dollars from a close aide of Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman in exchange for information about 6,000 Twitter accounts. 
One of the accounts belonged to the Saudi aid worker, Abdurrahman al-Sadhan, who ran an anonymous satirical account uh, critical of the Saudi kingdom. Four years ago, he was abducted by the secret Saudi police, tortured and sentenced to 20 years in prison. The jury's decision comes just weeks after President Biden traveled to Saudi Arabia to meet with Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. The two men greeted each other with a fist bump. We're joined now by Abdurrahman al-Sadhan, sister, Arij al-Sadan, as well as Jim Walden, who's an attorney for the al-Sadan family. Arij, let's begin with you. Talk about what happened to your brother and how this relates to this jury finding this Twitter worker guilty of providing information about Twitter users to Saudi Arabia. Yeah, absolutely. First of all, thank you so much for having me. Uh, so when I first heard the verdict, I couldn't help but think about the suffering that my brother have went through all these years and the suffering of my family and the many other families who are a victim of this um, hacking. Uh, so uh, four years ago, more than four years ago, my brother was kidnapped uh, from his work uh, at the Red Cross in Riyadh and uh, disappeared for years and deprived of any communication or even access to legal counsel. During his disappearance, he was brutally tortured with electric shocks, beating, sleep deprivation. They broke his hand and smashed his finger, saying, this is the hand you tweet with. My brother ended up in the intensive care unit for days, for almost a week, fighting for his life as a result of the torture. And only after three years of disappearance and held without any charge, he was brought to a secret sham trial where he got sentenced to 20 years imprisonment, followed by 20 years trouble ban for running a satirical Twitter account. Uh, that same Twitter account was uh, was part of the, the uh, Saudi government uh, list of uh, Twitter accounts that they wanted to, to hack. And um, as we've seen from this case, um, this verdict it represent a step forward towards accountability, but yet still it's not justice because my brother still disappeared. We have no communication whatsoever with my brother at all. We've been deprived completely from any communication with my brother. He'd been in, held in solitary confinement for years, uh, deprived of any contact with us at all. So what kind of recourse do you have right now? And have you been in touch with the Biden administration, not to mention um, the leadership at Twitter? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I've been in, in uh, contact with the U.S. officials continuously about my brother's case. Um, the recent visit uh, of President Biden to Saudi Arabia, it, it, unfortunately, it, there, were, there haven't been any improvement to human rights. My brother continued to be disappeared. We haven't been able to communicate with him at all. Um, instead, um, from President Biden promising to improve human rights and make human rights the center of, of, foreign, of his foreign policy, uh, instead he rewarded ordered MBS with a fist bump, basically validating MBS on the world stage, emboldening MBS to commit more human rights abuses against our families, our loved ones, and against many innocent people. Uh, it is really terrifying for us and many other victims out there of this brutal regime. Um, and unfortunately, so far, we haven't heard any news or any update about my brother's case. He continued to be disappeared. We have no communication whatsoever with my brother. In a statement, the U.S. attorney for the Northern District of California, Stephanie Hines, said, quote, In this case, the government demonstrated and the jury found that 
Abu Amo violated a sacred trust to keep private personal information from Twitter's customers and sold private customer information to a foreign government. As this case demonstrates, we will not tolerate the misuse of personal information or attempts by foreign governments to recruit secret malign agents at American technology companies. Do you hold out hope that this will be the case? I absolutely hold hope for definitely. Um, and uh, just to mention, Abu Ammo is only the symptoms, uh, the symptom of a much bigger problem. Uh, the targeting of activists and anyone who is at all uh, speaking up or, or uh, doing any human right activism uh, is very risky uh, from, you know, the, the Saudi government will target anyone and will use any mean they can. As we've seen, they've used a, a U.S. company here based in the U.S. Um, to target activists in the U.S. and also in other places around the world. Part of that, they will go to length to kidnap people, even murder people to silence them. Um, so the, the Abu Amu is one, only one person, but there are many others out there who are still free and who are still targeting people. Uh, and as we've seen, Abu Amu received orders directly from Badr al-Asakr, who is the right-hand man of MBS, um, asking him personally to to hack these accounts and to leak their personal information. If that didn't happen, my brother wouldn't be in prison today, tortured and disappeared and deprived of any communication with us completely. So the risks are really high. And as even me, as uh, personally for speaking up, I'm, I get targeted and harassed continuously online by Saudi agents who are trying to silence me so I don't speak about the human rights abuses in Saudi Arabia. Jim Walden, uh, what responsibility does Twitter have in protecting users' information about abusive regimes? After reaching the verdict, one juror uh, reportedly told um, Abu Amo's lawyers that she wanted Twitter to bear, quote, a little more responsibility for this. Well, first of all, Amy, thank you for having me on. And I would say that Twitter and other social media companies uh, have more than a little responsibility for what's happening, not just with respect to Abdul Rahman's case and the case of other disappeared uh, Saudi uh, human rights activists and, and outspoken dissidents, but across a much broader array of misconduct. I mean, let's be clear. These social media companies have set up Trojan horses here on U.S. soil. This is not fancy bear in a bunker outside of Moscow or a similar bunker outside of Riyadh. This is uh, domains here in the United States that are being invaded by mal actors uh, for lots of different purposes, whether it is to influence our elections, to commit fraud, uh, uh, to uh, to uh, enhance transnational repression, as was true with respect to Abdul Rahman. Uh, and if the social media companies cannot police themselves and cannot put up structures to prevent this kind of action from happening, not even outside of their businesses, inside their businesses, then Congress needs to act with more uh, uh, robustness and verve to create regulations to require social media companies to have a meaningful compliance system, if you will, an internal police force to guard against this kind of action happening again. 
Uh, speaking to The New York Times, a Twitter spokesperson said the company had cooperated with law enforcement during the trial of Ahmad Abuamo. Twitter security executive Self Wilson testified at the trial that Abuamo's breach of users' confidential information had been inappropriate after the verdict was delivered. Wilson tweeted, been a long road to get this conviction, appreciate the efforts of so many to see that justice was done. Um, how high up was—I mean, while it was tried to—some uh, tried to say this is a low-level Twitter employee, um, it looks like, uh, looking at The New York Times, um, lawyers for Mr. Abuamo described him as merely a Twitter employee who'd been doing his job. Other media partnership managers—other media partnership managers at Twitter also developed close relationships with influential people who use the platform and provided white-glove service, helping them become verified on Twitter, handling their complaints about impersonators and troublesome accounts. Uh, can you talk more about their responsibility? I, I can. And the only thing that I agree with him about is that the Department of Justice deserves a lot of credit for aggressively going after this one person. But the, the question still remains why, if he was a low level person, what the hell is he doing with the personal data of the user? Why is a low level Twitter employee allowed to get access to the part of the system that allows them to go beyond the handle and find the information of the actual person who's using their account and anonymous posting is obviously permitted, that should be something that's behind a firewall that is protected from Twitter's employees and that only people with certain clearance uh, have access to. And Twitter clearly did not have any sort of firewall to prevent that information from getting in the wrong hands. And look what happened. It did. And what did it result in? It resulted in an aid worker who was running an account with satire, getting arrested, tortured systematically, deprived of legal counsel, uh, isolated from his family, and now subject to a 20-year prison sentence. Right? This is the most un-American activity you can possibly imagine. And for Twitter to say that uh, it did enough by cooperating after the fact is simply nonsense. They were obligated to cooperate. And moreover, it was in their PR interest to cooperate so that they could look like they were good citizens. If they were good citizens, they would have a compliance structure where a user's anonymous information is not generally available to Twitter employees. It is behind a protected firewall and only high level people with clearance for a specific purpose can access that information. Um, Arij Al-Sathan, uh, can you talk about what you're doing now to have your brother freed? Uh, is it true that they broke his hand, smashed his fingers, saying this is the hand you tweet with? This is the hand you write with? Yes, yes, uh, definitely. The, the, the brutality of the Saudi uh, officials have no limits, unfortunately. Just like we've seen with the brutal murder of Jamal Khashoggi, there are thousands who are being brutally tortured. One, unfortunately, my brother is one of them. He was brutally tortured to the point that they broke his hand, saying this is the hand you tweet with. Um, and uh, he almost lost his life as, as part of the torture, the brutal torture he was going through. And on top of that, they left him in solitary confinement for years, 
basically just to add to the more to the to torture, the psychological torture of depriving him of any communication with us or even having access to any fair legal counsel. Um, so uh, what I've been doing is I've been speaking as much as I can publicly about the abuses uh, that is happening to us as personally uh, to our to my family and um, specifically to my brother and to many to the also the other cases that I, I learn about uh, along this journey um, so uh, the only option was left for me is just to come out and speak out about the abuses we've been silent for a year hoping that the Saudi government will be will respond to our request respond to our questions but unfortunately they've been ignoring and ignoring us and there was no response or no help at all from their end so I I had no option but to start speaking out publicly, which which was a huge risk, of course, because I continuously received threats to silence me. So uh, the one thing that we, we I can do or we can do is to keep speaking up and to uh, ask for action from our U.S. government um, to take action against these human rights abuses. Um, I've been trying to reach out to uh, the Biden administration personally to uh, highlight my brother's case, and they are, of course, aware of my brother's case. I'm among many other cases, especially of U.S. families who, are, who suffered from human rights abuses. But so far, we haven't seen action from the Biden administration. My brother still disappeared. Um, we need clear demand from the Saudi government to release my brother and all the other innocent people who are detained for no reason except for exercising their right to freedom of speech. Well, we want to thank you so much for being with us, and we will continue to follow your brother's case as well as others. Arij al-Sadhan is the sister of the humanitarian aid worker, online activist Abdurrahman al-Sadhan, and Jim Walden is the lawyer for the al-Sadhan family. We thank you both so much. Coming up, we speak to Walden Bello, the longtime Filipino activist, former vice presidential candidate. He was arrested in the Philippines on Monday on cyber libel charges. Stay with us. Hindi tayo tigil, tuloy-tuloy ang laban. Isang bagong kabanata sa larangan ng digma. Harapin natin ang hamon, ngayon ng pagkakataon. Tuloy and Laban, the struggle continues by Tubao Music Collective. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As we end today's show in the Philippines, where we're joined by Walden Bello, the longtime scholar and activist who ran for vice president of the Philippines earlier this year. On Monday, Walden Bello was arrested on cyber libel charges, what was widely viewed as a politically motivated case. Walden's arrest comes just weeks 
weeks after the inauguration of the Philippines' new president, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., the son of the former U.S.-backed Filipino dictator Ferdinand Marcos, who brutally ruled the Philippines for two decades, from 65 to 1986, when he was overthrown in the People Power Revolution. The Philippines' new vice president is Sara Duterte, the daughter of former President Rodrigo Duterte whose so-called war on drugs killed tens of thousands of people. The charges against Walden Bellow stem from comments he made about a member of Sara Duterte's campaign. On Twitter, Walden Bellow wrote, These people are mistaken if they think they can silence me and suppress my exercise of free speech. Well, Walden Bellow is joining us now from Manila. Welcome back to Democracy Now! Describe what happened to you on Monday. Well, thank you very much, uh, Amy, for inviting me. And I think, you know, that uh, it's it's very important to talk about the weaponization of the law in order to intimidate uh, people who exercise their free speech. I was basically um, at home on uh, Monday afternoon, and um, the police uh, came in and uh, served me the warrant of arrest that had been uh, issued um, a a, a few hours earlier in the southern city of Davao, which um, Mayor Duterte used to be the head of. And it was transmitted to Quezon City here. And uh, so it um, was—we had been waiting for the warrant for weeks. But uh, we didn't expect the speed within uh, one day uh, that the warrant would be issued in Davao, which is several hundred miles uh, away, uh, and um, uh, issued here to me in 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 Manila. So I was brought to uh, the police station, and uh, it was too late to post bail, uh, and people said that that was deliberate to make me spend a night in jail. And um, the um, next uh, day, the uh, bail uh, for um, um, two counts of cyber libel uh, was posted, uh, nearly about, uh, coming to nearly about, um, um, you know, slightly under um, uh, um, $2,000. Uh, and um, and I was um, I was released uh, late afternoon on 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 Tuesday, so uh, that's sort of a blow by blow account of the 24 hours uh, from my arrest to um, my uh, release. Can you talk about the cyber libel law that was passed in 2012? Well. Uh, you know, it's uh, you know, it's uh, uh, a law that is very broad in terms of its application. Um, you know, to and implications for free speech in this country, uh, in the sense that um, it criminalizes libel. Uh, so libel is no longer just a civil charge, which can be settled. Uh, um, through negotiations uh, and through, um, you know, a cash 
um, 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 in order to be able to uh, um, settle a case. And of course, uh, libel, what they're using, and for example, in your case, you would question then fellow vice presidential candidate Sarah Duterte's record as Davao uh, city mayor, claiming the city has become the drug smuggling center of the South. Yeah. So this kind of political criticism they then cast as cyber libel? No. It, uh, yeah, well, it, it, uh, let me explain. Um, there were certain remarks that my social media team had posted uh, on uh, Facebook uh, that um, uh, asked uh, Mayor Duterte if she was aware, you know, that her press information officer, uh, a person named Jeffrey Tupas, was uh, in a party in which drugs were flowing and um, uh, where um, uh, people were arrested, but he was not uh, arrested. So it was um, in the context of a political debate in which I was raising uh, issues uh, regarding her performance as mayor, because that would have an implication for people to assess her record if she was really capable of being vice president, because I was, she and I were running for the same position. So the person that was referred to as uh, having been at that party um, was strictly incidental to the fact that it was raised in the context of my questioning her record, not only with respect to that person's presence, but also infrastructure. And as you said, the reputation of Davao City, of which she was mayor, uh, as, as a drug center. So because of that, you know, they launched this cyber libel now, case well, against well, me. Well, then, uh, Sarah Duterte, now the vice president of the Philippines, said in a statement Tuesday that she did not play a role in your arrest. She said, I've never filed a libel case in my life. Well, I, nobody believes that. I mean, it was fairly clear that uh, she is the prime motivator of this. Uh, and I was trying to say, you know, that um, in response to my calling her out to participate in a debate, because that's really what uh, people running for public office do, they not only pushed her camp, not only pushed this cyber libel case, uh, the city council of Davao, uh, city um, 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 declared me persona non grata, uh, and I was also labeled by her camp as a narco politician. So you see, the pattern is that they don't respond to criticisms. Instead, they use the law and they use uh, instruments of intimidation uh, in order to silence you. And this is exactly what's happening right now. Uh, it's, you know, the, the idea that some that she is not engaged in this, it's, it's, it, nobody believes that. I mean, the person was her press information officer. Um, uh, because of public criticism, she fired him, um, you know, after he was found at the drug party. So there was an element of um, admission that he had done something wrong. And then when he became, uh, she became the vice president and head of the Department of Education, she is now back. This person is now back 
as her uh, press relations and uh, officer and head of her media office. So, so basically, Walden, I, before we go, yeah. I want to make sure you sure. can comment overall on the new government that is headed by the son of the former dictator, um, that is headed by Bambang, by uh, Marcos Jr. Uh, and Sara Duterte, the son of the previous president. Yes. Um, let me just say that um, um, uh, people are really, really quite uh, worried that this is uh, a foretaste of things to come. Um, because just, you know, a few weeks after the new government was inaugurated, uh, there is this effort to intimidate the opposition um, by filing the cyber libel case. And by the way, my uh, um, my case um, must be seen in the context of thousands of cyber libel cases. I think the the estimates four thousand that have been uh, lodged by politicians against their opponents uh, over the last few years. The most prominent, of course, is the way that the uh, father of Sara Duterte. Uh, had f cyber libel cases uh, filed against Maria Ressa, the head of Rappler, who won the Nobel Prize uh, incidentally. But uh, I guess what people are now saying is that, you know, it's only been a few weeks and they're showing their fangs at this point in time. Uh, and, um, and that's true. I think that uh, this was, uh, of course, aimed at me, but the implications are much larger, and I am being made uh, an object lesson uh, of what can happen if somebody dares to criticize yeah, uh, a person in high office, uh, somebody in high office in this administration. So uh, I, I think, um, Amy, this is the reason why this has sparked so much domestic outrage, as well as international outrage, because, you know, people, uh, you know, really feel, you know, that this weaponization of the law, like the cyber libel, uh, is something that has uh, become uh, the modus operandi of these heads of government and officials that really do not like criticism. Uh, so, you know, the uh, people that you talk to, you know, throughout the whole range of, of the um, uh, society here, uh, throughout the opposition, they have come together on this, on, on this case because they know that if they win this case, if, if, the, if, the, um, uh, if the administration, uh, you know, wins this case in the judiciary, and it's likely that it will win this case because it's, it has a very strong control over judiciary, then people really feel that democratic rights are in very grave danger. That is what it is at stake here at the moment, and I think people see it, which is why they've come together uh, to demand that the administration, the Secretary of Justice at this point, just drop this 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 charge uh, against me. 
Well, Walden Bello, of course, will continue to cover your case. Walden Bello, acclaimed Filipino scholar, activist, former vice presidential candidate in the Philippines, co-founded Focus on the Global South, arrested Monday and charged with cyber libel charges. He was released from police custody on Tuesday. That does it for our show. Democracy Now! is currently accepting applications for a people and culture manager. Learn more and apply at democracynow.org. Democracy Now! is produced with Renee Feltz, Mike Burke. Welcome back, Dina Guzder, Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Sheikh, Maria Tarasena, Charina Nadura, Sam Alcoff, Tamari Astudio, John Hamilton, Robbie Karen, Honey Masood, Mary Conlin. Our executive director is Julie Crosby. Special thanks to Becca Stelly, John Randolph, Paul Powell, Mike DeFilippo, Miguel Nagara, Hugh Grant, Dennis Moynihan, David Prude, and Dennis McCormick. I'm Amy Goodman. Stay safe.